G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas and few things are more dangerous than a white colonial settler bloke sitting down with an indigenous fella and trying to talk uh, in a fearless and uh, no-holds-barred way about race and Western civilization and indigenous knowledge and the current fetish that we may have in Australia and the United States and elsewhere for deep, timeless wisdom as imparted by Indigenous elders, one of whom I suppose is Tyson Yunker Porter. He's an academic, he's an arts critic, he's a researcher, he's from a clan in North Queensland, far North Queensland. Uh, On the side, he carves traditional tools and weapons, but his main gig is that he works as a senior lecturer in Indigenous knowledges at a university in Melbourne uh, called Deakin. University and his latest book is amazing. He's been on the show before to talk about the book before that, which was called Sand Talk. This one's called Right Story, Wrong Story Adventures in Indigenous Thinking. I love Tyson. He is an amazing, he has an amazing ability to straddle the two worlds of the West and the Indigenous in a way that doesn't pander to our cliches about the majesty of uh, traditional ways of doing things. Um, I always get something out of the conversation. I loved this conversation. He really opens up in a way that was unexpected and I'm grateful for it. Hope you enjoy as much as I did. The one and only Tyson Yelka Porter. What's that again? Yeah, what's that? <laughs> uh, mate, I am so I, I'm I'm almost starstruck because you're in my ears all the time because I'm listening to the audiobook version of your latest book, which oh, is so oh. entertaining. You are such an entertaining narrator. <laughs> it's for people who 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 might only have read Tyson or who might not even have read that. You must listen to the audiobook of Tyson's latest book because he you you do You've got your voices of the old white colonialists. You've got your impersonations uh, of the what, Aborigines. You know, John believed. Locke, my- <laughs> yeah, that's right. uh, and even your friends who are like, you know, uh, I don't know, Danish anthropologists or something. You'll like yeah. do a mildly offensive Scandinavian <laughs> accent when you impersonate. Uh, I just love, I love the people that like you're allowed to do their accent. Mm, that's you right. Know, if they were Chinese, like- you couldn't do it. Like, I can't help myself sometimes. Just, uh, <laughs> you're allowed to do them. The, yeah. 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 Well, you you're do, also allowed, but I mean, because you can you know, do the Afrikaans thing. <laughs> but you're not a white guy, so you're also, you also have a little bit more latitude. You, know, you could do the Afrikaans bit. thing. I could, I could do a little bit of Afrikaans. You could do that. We need to do, yes. So much yes, fun. I could. <laughs> it's so much fun. <laughs> and there's at least a 50 year embargo before it comes <laughs> offensive. You yes, know? that's right. Exactly. They're going to pay uh, their dues. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. You only get to be racist for so many decades or centuries before yeah, yeah. You, uh, you, you, you have it coming to you. But there's some always someone, and I love my Vikings. Um, yep. Uh, and they're, they're very you patient do love with your me. Vikings. There's a – so the, one thing that's interesting in the book, and I wasn't going to start here, but we might as well since we're talking about Vikings, is the kind of um, commonality that you express between all Indigenous cultures across the world, which – a lot of people might not think of. I hadn't really thought about it, but the fact that there are these trends that you will see, regardless of how disparate the community is, you might be talking about a Scandinavian, you know, elk farming, elk hunting, uh, you know, indigenous community, or you might be talking about some first nations community in the desert in Australia, but they're going to fundamentally have something in common that neither of them has in common with the way that we're living our lives in the West right now. What, what is that? Yeah. Hugely diverse. I just think it's, uh, ways of being human. 
you know, like. But you say I mean, diverse, but I'm sort of saying the opposite, which is that you're saying that there are commonalities. No, there's, there's diversities, like, but then there's yeah. commonalities. But, you know, like, but I find a lot of those commonalities with my Viking mates too, you know? Yeah. Like you're. Actually, hang on, of, mate. Oh, yeah, sorry. No, I was just looking at the levels and making sure that I'm not yeah. too quiet. I might be a bit. You can hear me okay, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, all right, good. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Carry so, on. yeah, I, I find those commonalities with, you know, any anybody who's, uh, you know, uh, reconnecting with the law of their culture, the folklore, law, whatever you want to call it, and in, in a way that's where the land is speaking to them and they're speaking from the land, you know, not just about the land. You find this as much with Danish animists, you know. Um, I mean, the ones that aren't getting you know, changing the runes into Nazi tattoos. <laughs> Those you make guys the point. Right. Explain what yeah. you're talking about. Explain what uh, you're talking about. What that means. So, well, okay. So, my mate, Rune Rasmussen, I was like in this situation where I'm intermediary, intermediary between him and Taiko Watiti's office. Um, you know, he did he did the the Thor movies. Yeah, Taiko's a great, uh, great New Zealand director and actor yeah. and comedian. So, yeah. and this Maori Danish guy is going – no, 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 he's appropriating my culture and he's getting it all wrong. <laughs> That's, uh, you know what I mean? So I had this situation where, uh, you know, there's a, a a Viking, like, you know, uh, challenging a, a Maori on misrepresenting his culture. And that just, that tickled me pink, uh, just <laughs> being in that. <laughs> and the stuff you're saying about, like, white supremacists, I hadn't really realized, but there's a... I guess there's a trend of neo-Nazis or far writers to kind of co-opt uh, like ancient uh, yeah. Viking traditions and say like this is sort of the natural way of things and we're getting back to our heritage yeah. or something. Yeah, and I don't know. There's you know there's good common story across all like originating cultures on the planet and every continent, every culture has it. You know. Um, and you know when it's right because you see those commonalities and you know when it's wrong story because you don't see that. You see uh, departure from that and departure from ways of getting along, you know, uh, ways of making embassy with other people. So, I mean, that's one of them. You see everybody's looking for something like origins. They're looking for something to return to because nobody particularly likes where we are right now. And, you know, so you get uh, like a lot of, a lot of your sort of neo-Nazis they're digging back into a Viking heritage, you know, um, and they're kind of co-opting uh, runes and runic symbols and things like that, you know, to, uh, you know, tattoo on their forehead or whatever and, you know, justify It's better than a swastika if you're going through airport security. It's better yeah. to have a rune on your forehead. To, yeah. The, the TSA the proper, doesn't pull you over as much. Your proper Vikings, like the ones who, like, actually do the scholarship and, and do the cultural practice – and the ritual practice, the ones who are, you know, really working it the right way, they're, they're really upset about that. Of course. They, they get really upset when they lose another rune. Oh, okay, that one's gone. <laughs> Been appropriated by the yeah, that yeah. one Yeah, that one means kill all the Jews now. God <laughs> damn it. Another symbol gone. <laughs> but yeah. you can, in some ways, I mean, if you were being maximally empathetic, you could, you can understand the quest that people feel in modern society to connect themselves to some kind of yeah. ancient heritage, like to some yeah. source of meaning that, that, that grounds them in a way that yeah. in a world that's increasingly disorienting. But there's, there's people who, who want to um, you know, rediscover their foundations anew. 
and and change and grow from that. And then there's people who just want to reach back into the past and cherry pick a few bits and pieces that will justify their current position. Uh, you know, and um, and I guess that's the difference. Aren't we all cherry picking a bit? I mean, you know, it becomes cool yeah. to. Yeah, the the I mean, even in terms of your culture, the number of people who identify as First Nations has like mm. doubled or tripled in the past ten or twenty years. Uh, some of them you wouldn't necessarily pick as being blackfellas; they might just look white, but they're finding meaning. You know, they might be one eighth or something, but they're finding meaning in their heritage. And so, yeah. you know, they are turning up the volume intentionally on a particular type of ancestry, and they're deploying it for their own narrative purposes. Well, I, that's that's happening a lot, and it's not it's not just with people who are returning to an identity. Um, although that happens, it's fairly rare in terms of numbers. Um, but it's I don't know. So if you I don't know if you know about standpoint theory. Talk to you me. Know, standpoint theory. It's it's one of those uh, kind of post structuralist, post modernist, decolonial kind of thing. Uh, you know, a lot of it came out of post structuralist feminism. So it's part of that. You whole know, that's all general, my favorite sphere of philosophy. Tyson. General raft of you know, like. Your anti-woke sort of boogeyman, you know, it's in there, you know, yeah. as as one of those. Um, and I don't know. The whole idea of an indigenous standpoint theory is that it um, it puts you in in a kind of a, accountability system, you know, within your culture, so that you're not just speaking for yourself. You know, you can't just throw anything out there, but you have to speak from your community, from your law. You know, and you're accountable to that big ancient kind of peer review system where you can't just spout out your your opinions. That has to be like, you know, crowdsourced over deep time, you know, and, um, you know, you have your elders and all of your knowledge keepers who, you know, all your ideas have to filter through them uh, before they can be sort of claimed. But it kind of, I don't know, when the world sort of shifted towards individuality, you know, an individual, like, uh, you know, identitarian kind of ways of looking at yourself, you know, where you're branding yourself online and you're selling your brand, building your brand, it kind of shifted. So, standpoint became your demographic profile and like, you know, speaking as a such and such, you know, um, and this happened, this has happened on the left and on the right. You know, people just uh, speaking from their own identitarian positions. So mm. your standpoint became more individualized rather than a collective uh, thing, which you know, is what it was intended for, particularly with indigenous standpoint theory. Even so if you, know, you have a lot of people, who, if, if they you know end up being a pundit or a commentator, or they just write opinion pieces for the Guardian or whatever. Uh, start speaking more from their own fabulous sort of identity. You know, we're all kind of, I don't know, moved towards that. When you do that, you're more likely to cherry pick. But it's kind of where the politics and where the patterns of discourse have shifted for yeah. everybody, um, you know, since like around 2015 or so. Yeah. And so that's interesting. You're couching, or these people, not you, these people are couching um, – themselves in a in a cloak of community identity tribe uh and but what they're actually trying to do is a self it's a self-aggrandizing individualistic move of anointing yeah. oneself as a spokesperson for something or other so as a gay man i you know feel deeply offended by blah -de blah or you know as a Muslim yeah. australian or whatever it might be yeah uh, yeah it's but actually most most of us are pretty staunch on this but um 
And the narratives that get picked up are the more narcissistic sort of discourses, you know what I mean? Uh, so, um, you know, these get out there. These are real easy things to make memes about. And so, <laughs> so, you know, that's the message often that's elevated, you know. Um, but, you know, most of us are still pretty staunch about that. We, we speak as we. You're always a we. Even when you're doing something yourself, you're a self in relation and that's who you are. Mm. Um, but, you know, that, I don't know, that's tedious to get through if you're reading it. So, <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, you you have a you have a good go at it, and I mean, you make the point that there is there is only you know you sort of <laughs> you have a funny passage where you where you're getting stuck into the sort of Americanized self help style of self actualization, which yep. uh, teaches us that there are infinite depths within us if only we will be brave enough to find yeah. to reach inside ourselves and find the universe that resides within and you're basically like that's bullshit there's not much there there's not there's much no, in you there's, there's, not, there's <laughs> nothing in me not in you not in me what we are is connected yeah. to each other you remove us from other people all of a sudden it's a completely different kettle of fish everything yeah. is relationships that's basically it. so stop focusing on yourself you sanctimonious self-absorbed asshole I think that that's it summary that's it. Stop fetishizing your biology and, and and getting a DNA test and finding out you came from either Siberia or Native American because that's where most of those things land when you send them off. You can send them in dog hair and they'll send back one of those results. You know, um, you know, and then getting all excited about that. You know, like I know actual, you know, uh, you know, Siberian descended people whose like grandparents like had to flee. You know, down here, and they they they're properly connected. You know, like there's a sandpiper bird that comes down to here um, on you know um, uh, Bunurong, Bunurong, Wurundjeri land here m- around Melbourne. It migrates from Siberia and comes here periodically. And so, you know, your Siberian descendant people here are really doing it right. They're they're noting that and they're feeling that. Uh, you know, they're tracking that connection from northern to southern hemispheres and making meaning that way of being in this different place. You know, um, there are things that bind. <laughs> you know, there is a global north and there's a global south, but um, there's been so much movement and embassy and, you know, disruption and displacement that, you know, half the south is in the north and half the north is in the south. And there are still, you know, species carrying that law, carrying that good story. And that uh, those connections, you know, from whales to birds to everything else, you know, migrating around. You now know. you're sounding woo-woo, Tyson. You don't like no, sounding it's, woo-woo. It's, it's just, it's just something. It just helps you make meaning. Where you think, you know, hey, there's always movement across and between these systems. It, there's no idea of, oh, God put these people here and God put this species there. It's like, no, no. There's always exchange across and between systems. And I guess if you are grounded in those natural systems to find the patterns of your ways of being, then you will be making good embassy with other people because a closed system is a dead system. Yeah. You've mentioned a couple of times good stories or right stories and wrong stories, which yeah. is the title of your latest book. What are good or right stories and what are wrong ones? Yeah. Um, well, like wrong, wrong story is usually something that someone or some group has sort of unilaterally uh, devised, you know, um, for for some kind of uh, like agenda that that's not stated, you know, in the story. 
it's it's um you know like traditionally you'd think of it as you know uh gossip you know things like this um uh, false witness, that that kind of thing. Um, so that's your wrong story. Right, right story is something that's um, that comes from you know a lot of different. Well, you know the hard, uncomfortable conversations had comfortably. You know, people sitting around the fire. I don't know. Have you ever heard the phrase "sitting in front of the fire"? Yeah. You know, so if you've got a hearth in a wall, you can only yeah. sit in front of the fire. But if you're sitting around the fire, where's the front? You know. You think you're in front of it, but then the fellow on the other side is in front of it too, and it just kind of evens things out. So you have every idea, every story. It goes through that peer review process of, um, you know, consensus building, and it takes its time. You know, uh, so right story happens over time. You know, considering all the points of view, and you know, weeding out what is wrong story there. You it's know. interesting that you say, um, like pr- the kind of process, or what did you just use? You used an academic term uh, that is escaping me for the moment. Uh, sort of um, like a peer review, you said. Yeah. Uh, and you know, in the book, you you talk about maybe the concept of a thought experiment might be the most useful uh, Western sort of rationalist analog to the sorts of communication and conversations that you're talking about. Um, yeah. You know, First Nations Australians have a concept called yarning, which is now very kind of popular and au fait in academia if you write a, you know, if you propose a thesis about how you're going to use mm. yarning modalities to, uh, you know, to deconstruct and analyze, you know, modern conceptual uh, structures or something like that. Everyone's going to go, oh, that must be so profound. You know, they're bringing yarning yep. to it. Yep. Um, and yet it's, a, it's a, a concept that is worth teasing out. What is it? Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I like uh, that's why I find that the closest uh, – you know, contemporary thing in the sort of global sort of Anglo-Western culture that, you know, pretty much everybody uh, must learn if they want to participate in the world. Um, Yeah, the closest thing is thought experiment, you know, because thought experiment is always a story, you know. (laughs) You're on a tram and you're heading towards like an old man and if you keep going, you're going to kill the old man, but if you you dodge, then you're going to kill like 20 people. What do you do? Tyson, it always confused me so sinking. much because America, Americans use the word trolley to talk about a tram. Yeah. And so, the, you know, the, the trolley uh, trolley, that's right. The I never understood problem. it for the, for the first 30 years of my life. I was like, yep. what the fuck's a trolley? In, 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 in Australian and English English, a trolley is a shopping cart. Yeah. So why is a shopping cart going to kill a bunch of people? But then that's I realized, it. but okay, it's a, good it's, a street <laughs> car. it's a street car. Okay. It's, it's a story. Tram. You know, it's always <laughs> narrative-based. You know, the ship's sinking. There's one lifeboat. It's only got room for 20 people, but there's 100 people drowning. Do you save the poet? You know, who do you kill? No. <laughs> a lot of them are, are really <laughs> the weird. overboard. I don't know. And, like, I, I think some of those ones are, like, wrong story because really it's sort of nudging people towards eugenics. <laughs> 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 who do you? Who has more value? Who should live? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I know it's really bad, but if you're forced to choose <laughs> – but isn't it useful? I mean, I quite like those sorts of thought experiments because it is useful for me to put – and people always hate it when I do it yeah. because they, they take it the wrong way. They misunderstand the, the point of an analogy. People aren't very good at understanding analogies uh, yeah. or metaphors. Uh, I think they they don't understand – they often think that you're being literal. But in order yeah. to test the edges of why you – in order to understand why you believe what you believe, you need to be able to defend it in extremis. Yeah, and so. Yeah. Starting to think about well, okay, if you believe that it's wrong to kill, then would it still be wrong to kill in X 
scenario in mm. which it seems you know crazy not to do the killing you know there's it's it's Hitler. He's about to pull the trigger on a million yeah, yeah. You know, Jews being incinerated. Do you still not want to kill him or whatever? Then I think it, it is helpful to sort of tease out why you think what you think and yeah. when you would stop thinking it. Isn't it? Yeah, I think so. It's um, but that's, this is this is the beauty of thought experiments is that um, so there's no wrong answer and everybody gets to finish the story, you know, with like a thousand. 50,000 different alternative endings and it's a sort of general consensus building thing done by a community. Uh, it's a sort of inquiry and, you know, things are discovered in there, you know. Um, I Sometimes it could be bad things like utilitarian bioethics or <laughs> something like that and, you know, they're sort of, well, we should strangle these ones at birth. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that's the problem. Oh, like it, it's, you know, uh, the only problem with thought experiments – is that your the story has to be good? It's, it's got to be the right story to start with because your originating seed is going to produce, you know, uh, malignant or you know benevolent <laughs> sort of fruit down the track. Um, yeah, so it's kind of like yarning in that sort of you know you, you see heaps of different points of view, and it's a, a problem that people are working on together to come up with consensus. You know, prisoners' dilemma, that kind of thing, all the famous ones. Um, yeah. I mean, you're straddling these two, um, I was going to say worlds, but maybe like conceptual frames is a better way of putting it in the sense mm. that you're in academia, you live in a Western liberal democracy, you're talking to people like me who are old-fashioned, small-l, liberal, you know, the people who speak like the cartoon voice that you put on when you're talking about the colonialists yeah. uh, who, who are steeped in a certain, you know, way of kind of old Ivy League sandstone building university enlightenment thinking, and yet you've got one foot in the other camp where, well, well, like what is the other camp? Because I think your book does a good job of trying to articulate this, I don't want to say schizophrenia, but this, I Mm. guess, um, this, you know, bifurcation or dichotomy of the two ways of approaching the world, Uh, logic, conversation. Acculturation is the key there. It's... You know, like I don't live in two worlds. It's none of us get to live in two worlds. You know, there's a world that's been uh, imposed, mapped, just dumped right on top of us, you know, and we have to live in that world. And I don't know, you can visit your own culture for kind of like conjugal visits uh, from time to time. But, you know, none of us can live completely in our culture. Um, You just have to become a master of acculturation, which is – you know, being able to I- inhabit and master the the dominant culture, um, you know, but still maintain, uh, you know, who you, your own community and who you are, and that's that's always the struggle. You know, most of us are kind of fringe dwellers in these sort of halfway camps um, where we're not doing particularly well in either culture, you know, and that's been me for a long time. Um, there's actually a a mental illness profile that comes with that, um, which is really interesting. Coming out of the uh, Westerman Institute, you know, you get dissociative fugue states and all kinds of things happening. There's a, you know, a whole thing there, um, which is interestingly really similar to the the um, pathology, you know, the the neurological pathology profile of people who've been radicalized online um, because they're no longer inhabiting their their former reality. Um, they don't trust their institutions. They don't trust their community. 
their kids um, don't want them to come to Christmas dinner <laughs> because mm, they're talking, mm. you know, in a whole different language that's really offensive or whatever. So they're like, they're not in their community anymore, but they're not in inhabiting the reality either. So they're in this kind of marginalized, uh, you know, marginal fringe camp kind of way <laughs> right. of being. So, so if, if you've been red pilled, yeah, it's sort of like it's sort it's, of like it's being, like indigenous being person a, a displaced got, black fellow. Yeah, it's, well, it's the same yeah. psychological profile anyway. Um, so acculturation is the the treatment protocol for that, and that's just doing, I guess, what you've already mastered as a secular Jew. Right. Yeah, it's a, right. the same sort of thing. You, I yeah. mean, you you wouldn't feel yourself to be walking in both worlds. You know, you're um, you know, you, you are you're you're you, and you are you know a part of both communities. Um, yeah. But that's where the that's where the um the success of of the Jewish diaspora and that massive, you know, massive diversity, but still with you know a, a commonality and a strong community that's managed to hold itself together and you know keep the language and everything else for not just two hundred years but like two thousand of them, hmm. um, five thousand, mate, five. Yeah, 000. yeah, but yeah, that, I mean that's an interesting analogy in the sense that my, but I'm conf- I'm very conflicted about it. I mean I'm uh, I'm. Uh, like what I enjoy and the reason I do the job that I do is to wrestle with that liminal space between mm. being a Jew and not being a Jew, uh, you know, being a Jew and being an atheist, being yeah. married to a guy and not being, uh, you know, a card-carrying member of the gay community, being, you know, a white guy who you know, doesn't believe in all of the things that white people have claimed to do on behalf of white people. You know, like yeah. being a man who is, you know, concerned about misogyny, uh, like wrestling with the with the grey zone is sort of the, I think, the job of the person. So, I mean, not, but that's coming from a person who's instinctively, like, uh, antithetical to the concept of tribe and community because yeah. I'm a contrarian but there are other people for whom community is is the most you know important thing in their lives and conforming well, to community do you, do you feel like you're people. occupying multiple worlds or are you in a world I'm in a world yeah yeah and you know we're all in a world it's just the the extent of the denial that we have about that world you know and I'm I'm like uh you know I'm I'm still struggling uh to do the acculturation thing Maybe, you know, another 1,800 years or so, I'll, I'll sort it out. <laughs> struggling as an Indigenous Australian to acculturate to the West or struggling as a Westerner to acculturate to Indigenous culture or both? No, no. The Yeah, always and completely the former. Um, yeah, just just struggling to, um, yeah, just, just try to come to terms with just having a whole completely different code and way of being that's 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 often you know way out of step with things in terms of the speed of stuff and the focus of stuff and the just the implicit values of everything happening around you and just trying to uh i don't know so i'm turning like this big wheel and then this one's going real fast over here you know and i gotta somehow keep sinking in with that in some kind of weird elliptical orbit um you know it's a it's a struggle um you know but it's about the struggle is with your own denial 
you know, you're in denial of the reality and, you know, and how much you're holding into how things should be and, you know, um, against what is. And then what do you do about that? You know? So, you know, like, I don't know. So I, I can't stop struggling against mining and extraction. Um, but then I've got, you know, family members and a lot of, you know, heroes of mine too who are like, well, you know, uh, we gotta be we gotta be in the meeting. You know? <laughs> we can't just fight that because for what, you think you're gonna stop it? You know, at least this way if I'm you know, in the company, um, you know, then I'm in the meeting. And then, then there's like, well, but then beyond that, how much of the meeting is in you, you know, when you walk away, you know, what are you losing of yourself? Uh, what are you losing of us? And, you know, as a leader, what, you know, what changes? So, you know, just there's always good and bad coming in, light and dark, right and wrong. And, you know, it's always a mixed bag. You know, whichever way you go, it's a wrong step. But I think and that's everyone in the world right now. There's well, no the, way to be I or no position true. to occupy that isn't fraught. Yeah. I mean, mm. you know, quite apart from Indigenous people attending the mining meeting and perhaps compromising part of themselves in so doing, there's the fact that when I entered this room to have this conversation, mm. I considered whether or not to turn the fan on. And it's a hot day in Sydney, so I turned right. the fan on. And that's burning coal, Yeah, which we mine which is creating a chaotic climate. Yeah. And like I do that because I want to be slightly more comfortable while I'm talking to you. Yeah. So we're all in it. Like we're all in the system. That's it. Doing the thing to some extent. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's that struggle because it's, you know, what you do individually doesn't really make much difference. I mean, at all, you know, like you're selfish, like eating and bathing and <laughs> sheltering yourself, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, I do have a peculiarly the- Western fascination yeah. with cleaning my genitals and making sure I'm not covered in shit. Tyson. Yeah. But that's, that's why I mean, and we're all policing our individual actions and, and profiles and everything, but it's like, that doesn't do anything. You know, that's not the system. People think the system is an aggregate of, you know, behaviors, actions, and attitudes, but that would only work if you were, you know, genuinely in a democratic system. It's not like that. These, you know, the bigger systems are way beyond our control and, you know, way beyond even our capacity to do anything about. Um, I mean, unless you want to go full revolution, but we know where revolutions go. They're called a revolution for a reason. They just, uh, they keep coming around. (laughs) You just end (laughs) up with the same assholes on top of just with a different name and different face. You know, I don't think the system cares who's in charge of it as long as they're, uh, you know, they're going. But then that's ascribing mm. sentient, sentience to a um, <laughs> to a non-human entity, which you know is getting a bit weird. You say so in the book. You say something like that: the Aboriginal way of living is the best way ever devised in history. Yeah. yeah. Why? Um, I think that there's more to that part, as I as I recall. Like I, I also the sentence ends, but I don't really care. I, I don't need to uh, put that off onto anybody else. I don't really care if you agree with that or are interested in that or not. <laughs> I'm interested you know? in it. I yeah, mean, it's so a big like, claim. Yeah. Well, it's it's just the way we build our like uh, 
We build the negative feedback loops, the regulatory feedback loops into the affordances of all our technology. Um, so every bit of technology, whether it's social or psychotechnology or material technology, it always has limits built into it because it's we do this over deep time with right story. Um, but anything like, like if I show you this massive boomerang, this huge wall boomerang, to people who are listening to the podcast, Tyson is holding it's up a cute. magnificent, yeah. massive boomerang. Cut a man uh, in half. Which you can see on the YouTube. <laughs> on the Cut YouTube. a man in half. And we have these things. We have them, um, you know, have massive hardwood swords and things. You could cut a man in half, but only one man because <laughs> the ha- <laughs> like we always make the handle really small. Or we make the make the handle weak, or another part of it weak, so you can't go and uh, do an imperialism with a bunch of these <laughs> weapons. Well, you say you can, so. I mean, that may not have been the reason. You Maybe, can use you it know, for but- uh, no, no. This it's in the law. Like you can you can have a magnificent battle with these huge things, and it's really demonstrative, and you know gets it all out of your system. But you can't go on then to go. Okay, let's wipe out all these people and take their land next door. So that's why the Aboriginal no, map of true, Australia but- looks like it looks. It's a patchwork quilt of so many different tribes. You're not seeing you know one big one enveloping a whole heap of others. Um, you know we build affordances in uh, and into, into but, I mean, go- the, but, governance but models. De- our governance system that I explain in the book is also built to to um, limit that. It sort of forces interdependence and embassy where by it becomes impossible to destroy other tribes without destroying yourself. Um, yeah, so we have those things built in. So, you know, in that way, it, it is the best way ever devised, um, you know, to so live. So was there no planet. tribal warfare for the tens of thousands of years? Yeah, yeah. Highly ritualized, very rule-governed uh, battles, heaps of battles, no warfare. Battles are, battles are needed. Battles are freaking heaps of fun. And um, <laughs> you got to give your young men somewhere to put all that stuff they got. You know, they, they, people, you know, we got to bust that nut as men. That's got to happen. <laughs> and you got to channel that into something, you know. Um, but so, you know, you have martial arts systems that's modeled on the um, the the fights that male kangaroos have with each other, you know. Um, and, you know, y- you have things that limit and, and then rules as well. So, like, if you injure somebody, uh, mm-hmm. then you're responsible for um, gathering food for them until they get better. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, and there's sort of built in, there's built in limits. There's always regulatory feedback loops built in, um, you know, to all the rule governed stuff that happens. You don't just have a massive battle where you go, oh, let's choose this ground so that when they march towards us in their heavy armor, they'll all get stuck in the mud and then we can beat their superior numbers and then, I don't know. Take over their castle or whatever. <laughs> Take like their women stuff. and all their wine and live yeah. in their castles forever. Yeah. But I mean, the, of course, the Westerner would say that the, you know, this model of uh, battles, not warfare, and having the boomerang for just one hand it is great until the British Navy shows up. Yeah. At which point, uh, you know, so there's a virtue in, in that model because mm. it, it, ha- it had longevity. Yeah. But it, what it didn't have that the West does have is a, this arrow of progress that goes yep. from boomerang to gunship 
to, you know, space laser to walking on the moon, vaccines, whatever else it might be that you yeah. want that do have, I mean, do, those things do have merit to some people's lives. I mean, it's good that we live in a world, isn't it, where there are vaccines and planes or not. Yeah. I know. Um, you could, it's, it's not good the for problem, your lot. But the problem that's always highlighted is that, um, is that our ways don't scale. Um, which they did continentally and, and also with, uh, you know, the very long tradition of trade that we had up through the Torres Straits into New Guinea and then uh, into Indonesia, even what's called Indonesia now. You know, these protocols did work, um, you know, with others who are living under that and, and would respect that. Um, the problem is, you know, um, everybody has to be doing it or it doesn't work. And so if you've got a, suddenly this global culture where you can mobilize many thousands really quickly uh, from one place to another, you, you, got, you got trouble there, you know, because that technology didn't evolve, um, you know, uh, slowly enough and, and thoughtfully enough with the limits that were needed uh, to prevent it from becoming, um, you know, a, a really horrible way to bloody live, um, which, you know, arguably a lot of that was caused by climate change. You know that last, uh, the end of the last ice age, and you know some continents drying out, some of them getting wetter, sea levels rising. You know, holy per Vikings got no land anymore. <laughs> anymore that's that you know is going to support their life. You know, you got to go out and raid some fellas. Um, you know, so these things happen. You know, and we deal with them. I guess it's just life's two big questions: is you know how do you how do you cope with change? How do you deal with change? And how do you deal with assholes? Um, I think is, is life's two big questions. Do you have uh, an answer? Um, no. <laughs> it's just ongoing inquiry. Maybe my grandkids will figure it out. I mean, in addition to how do you cope with change, there's the question of do you instigate change? That's I mean, isn't it. the, you know, because it's like the Scottish Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution yeah. happened. And and ever since then, we've been living in a, a world in which move fast and break things is yeah. the ethos. And yeah. that has had tremendous upsides in reducing infant mortality and increasing yeah. life expectancy and increasing the range of foods that we get to eat and the number of diseases that we can treat and the mm. number of places that we can explore and the amount of entertainment that we can consume it also has downsides yeah because uh, move fast and break things means you break a lot of things yeah well you know the people who want to make change um it's like conservatives they hold on to story and they try to you know limit and slow down change and be more thoughtful about it well that's what conservatives used to be until they became freaking radicals um <laughs> which is just break things quickly. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the the problem, I guess, with the, I don't know, that kind of, it's it's not really the world we live in anymore, but it's the, all the systems and institutions, is, they still ha have that pattern, uh, you know, uh, this kind of, um, you know, like everything has to be research-based and secular and, you know, um, considered. So we try and make decisions based on these things. Uh, but th there's no story with that. You know, it's, it's always exposition and, you know, facts and, uh, and, and reasoning and that, that doesn't grab people. 
And that makes room for people to come in who do have narratives, which is what grabs people. Um, you know, if, if you've got narratives that, you know, what's going on in the world is a struggle between angels and demons, um, the light and the dark, you know, civilization and uncivilization. Oh, my goodness. You know, that, that's a narrative that'll grab people where they live. You know, um, you can mobilize armies like that. You can, uh, you can get people doing street violence and then hold that over everybody else's head. Um, you know, and when you dox someone, which is, you know, you can make like a list of liberal professors and like dox them and you'll know then that there will be multiple bomb threats and death threats, which will continue until that person has to be let go or has to move town. <laughs> you know, you can, uh, story's powerful, you know, whether it's right or wrong story, you know? And, yeah. um, yeah, it's, I don't know, like, um, the kind of progressive liberal consensus that was the reality before they they didn't really have good story. Um, and, or if they did, they didn't use it right. Um, you know, people, uh, get disenchanted with, um, you know, too much rationality. You, you gotta yeah. have, you gotta have a mythology. You gotta have a folklore. You gotta have a unifying narrative. Um, well, that, that's how I'm going to round out the trilogy anyway. Yeah. With these three what's books. The, I'm, I'm what's the next one? Try and get a, a, a sort of a unifying narrative. Um, you know, not unifying like everyone's saying one, but, you know, compatible narratives. Yeah, right. Yeah. We're looking into like serpent, serpent law around the globe, um, you know, from like dragons to, you know, the Midgard serpent and <laughs> uh, rainbow snake and all these ones. And we're kind of looking at it, it. It's always a foundational mythology and a sense that this thing was here before, you know, uh, this world and that, you know, it's not really good or bad. It's, 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 it's the thing that, uh, you know, is around creation and destruction and, you know, that struggle towards, um, you know, negative entropy, I guess physicists would call it, but, you know, holding, holding the world together. Um, getting homeostasis or stability in the systems and and becoming a better person and then I'll be trying to be more more of a, a good person than an arsehole and it just answers that how to deal with arseholes question. I mean, because there's values that come with this all the time, like whether you're St. George who has to slay the dragon or whatever, there are – there are cultural sort of norms and 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 sort of rules for decent behavior and and decent speech and you know decent um what is it that uh, there's the right speech this is a buddhism thing this also was in zoroastrianism right speech right thought and right action you know it's um this sort of tends to come through in the serpent law from all over so i'm imagining you know, so I'm interviewing people from like Myanmar and Africa and all around the world. Of course, my Viking mates too, because I love my Vikings. And uh, yeah, I'm doing this one with my with my partner uh, Megan Keller, and we're you know, uh, so I'm not doing this one solo, which is the other thing. Yeah, right. You know, if you do something yeah. unilaterally like the last two books, it's that's just your random words coming out. It's not, <laughs> you know, unless you're really solidly in your standpoint, then, um, you know, it's just going to be like uh, unilateral stuff coming out. So this one's going to try and be more consensus building and more 
uh, bringing people together. Uh, rather than just going, hey, we're the best and you all suck. (laughs) You don't do that. Yeah. You don't do that. But but there is a phenomenon that you put your finger on, which I'm sure the listener has noticed too, which is in our quest for mythology and for Mm. lore, the the ones that sound um, traditional Mm. and indigenous are given a pass if they're nonsensical in a way that traditional Western woo-woo doesn't, right? You talk about the majesty yeah. of the serpent and everyone's like, oh, my goodness, this is so filled with ancient wisdom. You talk about Adam and Eve, yeah. which you spoke disparagingly about a moment ago, and everyone apart from Christians is like, that's just a silly book. Uh, you know, Why would you believe such nonsense? But yeah. then you start talking to them about the indigenous lore and their eyes go wide and they're like, wow, I'm getting in touch with something that's deeply meaningful. I mean, isn't... Isn't ancient nonsense just ancient nonsense, regardless of which tradition it comes from? Yeah, it, it's just here's the problem. Uh, damn, you know, I got to use big words like epistemology and ontology, but you know, you, but your epistemology is your how you make sense of reality, like what stories you're going to tell yourself. You know, um, you know, your inquiry and investigation into reality and how you conduct that—that's your epistemology. Ontology is just you know what's real, what you know to be real. And that there's, you know, this, of course, there has to be a common ontology. Everyone's got to have some basic agreement about what's real. You know, there is gravity. That's a real thing. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, the problem is is getting all that mixed up. If you get the stories mixed up uh, as like you try to be like a, um, what do they call it? Inerrantism uh, with, 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 with Bible scholars who say, no, no, no. Every single word is exactly perfect and inviolable and it happened exactly like that, you know. So, if you're using it as that rather than as a roadmap, you know, for how you make sense of the world, you know, then you tip things up. So, if we say it like this, like the epistemology, that's what's true, you know, for how you make your truth. Ontology, that's what's real. Now, if you get truth and real mixed up, and especially in a post-truth world now, everybody's truth is is what they're thinking is the reality. <laughs> um, so th- there's been this like polar shift, you know, where the true has become the real, you know, and and but the you're real using is up for grabs. truth in a in a slightly slippery way there, aren't you? So you're talking if, about my if you're my approaching truth, my lived truth. Yeah, I mean, so our stories. That's the law, L-O-R-E. It's also the law, L-A-W, you know, because it's not, you know, it, it doesn't matter if it's bloody, um, you know, factually, this is exactly how it happened. You know, it, it's actually carrying a whole heap of law and uh, messages about behavior and like a universe of knowledge in there, uh, like as a mnemonic device, you know, and there's sex and violence in these stories. And that's there for a reason because it helps you remember, you know, there's whole maps of land and meaning with all the ways that you have to be and interact. Um, but then how you interact with the next people and the next people and the next people, these song lines go right across, you know, these big stories, they carry, they carry the sort of rules and the norms of, of how to be, you know, and how to pursue the truth, you know? So, you know, your truth might be that the Southern cross is an emu foot, uh, but it also, you know, the neighbors next door, they might think it's like the eyes of a of an old fella and, and, a, and a young fella got thrown up there in a tree. 
you know, and then there's a couple of galahs or white cockatoos chasing them. It might be different. It's not, it's, we, we sit around the fire with those people and it's not like, no, no. No, it's, sure, but, but no, what happens to the guy? Who, Are you crazy? What, Southern Cross what happens is a stingray. What's wrong with you? The, what happens to the guy who thinks that the Southern Cross is just the way that we perceive a few balls of flaming gas in the distant cosmos from our particular point in the galaxy? Yeah, well, then he brings that story. And there's got to be story for that. But is that a story with, with in the same kind of is that the same well, kind of story as the This is the problem I highlighted before. Your your secular sort of progressivism it does not have good story. So you you got to have story for that, you know? Mm. And like okay, so if you if you read uh, uh, Hawkins you know, like you read his story about that, he he will still tell a story of creation. And of how things came to be, you know, he'll he'll map that out. So there is story there. It's just not very exciting. Well, um, I mean, this is the great challenge, though, of of secular life, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, like you know, Carl Sagan. Uh, when mm. I was in my teens, I read Cosmos, and uh, you know, Richard Dawkins has a book called Unweaving the Rainbow, which is yep. about the sort of poetry and majesty of science or like the the magic of existence i think is another one of his books there are people richard feynman the great physicist yeah there are people who have sort of devoted their lives to trying to make the stories of what is factually true about the world as emotionally evocative as bullshit stories no offense and it's a it's a tough it's a tough ask well i still think it's a i still think it's a mission worth pursuing yeah, well, um, when you're doing it unilaterally like that, uh, you know, it's it's no good. I mean, I, I think the, you know, the good stories uh, in science, like that we get excited about. That you know, my granddaughter is staying with us now. She's moved from back up home and staying with us, going to school here. Science is a favorite subject. You know, that there's good stories in there. Those those eureka moments, even if they're a little bit bullshit. <laughs> You know, and it probably didn't really happen that way. And Newton yeah. was probably a bit more of an asshole than everybody. <laughs> well, so it doesn't matter. The story's important. You know, well, the story's. I want him to be under found. the apple tree. He's under the apple tree. The apple falls out and hits him on the head. Chicken Wait, little you don't need that story. You know? You're being cheeky, Tyson. You don't I need, need that story. You don't story. need that story to be true for Newton's theory of gravity to be true. It, you don't no, need Archimedes to have actually jumped out of his bathroom. Exactly. It doesn't need to be true, but the story's got to be there, you know, because it's the story of inspiration because what's happening in that moment when you're learning about, you know, Newton and, and the theories of gravity, it, an apple is falling on your head. You know, and it doesn't have to be real, but the story is the thing that ties it together. Well, I'd like it to be real, Tyson. I mean, yeah, yeah. The, the, no, but don't the get your epistemology ontology mixed up. It, it can be fair enough. No, it can be real well, without being an, true. Here, here is an <laughs> here is an ontologically true thing that is epistemologically satisfying as a story, which yeah. is that if you go really, really fast, then time slows down. And you can, I was telling my kids about this the other day. You can, yeah, yeah. Put, you can get two clocks and you can sync them up perfectly and you can put one on a spaceship and you can send it into space. And when it comes back, it'll actually be ticking slower than the one on Earth, not through some trick, but because it's actually experienced less time just because yeah. it was going fast. Like that, you should have seen my six-year-old son's eyes when I told him that. Yeah. That's a great story. It doesn't yeah. matter how a person found it out. It's yeah. woven into the fabric of reality. It's true. Uh, that's, it's that's testable. Why, it's verified. That's why Newton can't make your phone work. 
you know, but Einstein Yeah, that's can. right. You know, that's it's right. the same thing. You've got to factor that in with the equations. But mm-hmm. Newton helps me win money at the pub playing pool. <laughs> Einstein helps me win money if I'm online sports gambling. So, you know, <laughs> you just shift your story. You move your story depending on where you are. And that's the same as us. We all sit around the fire. Very easy, good uh, conversations with uh, Western astrobiologists sitting around with an islander, central desert fella, all different stories for that. But, you know, if, if that happened earlier on, then, you know, people, you know, science would have discovered that, um, you know, craters are formed by asteroids heaps faster than they did if they'd been in dialogue with other cultures, you know, particularly ours, you know. Um, it's There's, there's yes. lots of things there. And not just like, ah. Oh, you know, their story's true. There was a giant dingo. Literally, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, it's not about the facts in the story, but it's about, you know, all the things that come along with it. And and sometimes there's facts that are interesting. Uh, for example, the markings on, you know how there was like uh, 12,000 years ago, there was um, giant lizards in Australia that could like eat a man, <laughs> you know. We still got the stories for them. So even if on the fossil record, the fossil record can't tell you what color they were or what the markings were on their skin. We can because it's in our stories. You know, we have descriptions of those things in the stories. So there's, you know, there are fact-based things in there that you could, you know, that you could uh, learn from. It is conceivably possible that over the past 40,000 years there's been a little embellishment about the color of the skin of the lizard. Well, that's it. There's a game of telephone going on as well. Yeah, there's there's some things that hold hold strong in there. It's like – there's, there's stuff that's memorized. The story's got different layers. So there's a big fantastical story, which is a big mnemonic device, and then there's subsets of knowledge in there that's rem- that's that's rec- um, that's learned at different levels of you know initiation. You know, so there's some stuff that's just has to be kept um, absolutely solid. You know, Kunta Kinte, freaking, you know, was was taken by these slavers and that's memorized by the guy who's got the memory board with the beads on it, you know, and then bloody Alex Haley goes back, <laughs> you know, <laughs> a century or more later and and that old fella can tell him that from the oral history. You know, there's stuff like that there that's kept, you know, really solid. The story itself is a psychotechnology, um, you know, for organizing, you know, all of those things, but with the ethics embedded as well um, to, to keep that law strong. Um, also, it's evocative. You know, we learn best through story. We remember through story. So, you know, it doesn't have to be true story. You know, I, I don't care if, if Newton got hit in the head by an apple. Uh, I don't care whether that's true or not. That's irrelevant. Uh, but what that does to me in helping me remember those those equations um, that that's important. You know, you got to have good story. If it wasn't for that story, there's no way I'd be interested in Newton. It would uh, be important, though, in a science textbook to d- distinguish between uh, the laws of gravity that are testable and the claim that he was yeah. hit on the head by an apple. I just, I, I just think nobody's ever had trouble separating those things until recently. You know, <laughs> it's really? just people Haven't, hasn't people the history arguing of human civilization and the history of confusion and befuddlement. Uh, <laughs> certainly, the history of the history rigorous? of civilization, but it's only become problematic, you know, recently, relatively recently, with people just sort of, you know, um, 
I don't know, get, getting into a massive tribal war around whether two plus two equals five or, you know, <laughs> some shit yeah. like that. Well, so let me give you another example. Like the there was a I'm half Kiwi and I know that you've done work, you've studied uh, Maori and the there was this ongoing debate in New Zealand about whether or not Maori uh, science should be taught alongside Western science in science textbooks mm. in the New Zealand curriculum um, with a bunch of white science, mostly white scientists, saying if you know if when the Maori science works, then it's just science. So yeah. uh, thank you and congratulations for finding out what the Westerners didn't. But if they're you know to, to transpose yeah. the example to Australia, if there are if there are fire techniques that Indigenous Australians know that work better than Westerners understand, mm. that's great. That ter- that then is just part of the corpus of knowledge of science, and that yeah. is then verifiable human. Knowledge. You don't have to define it as indigenous knowledge or Western knowledge or mm. set up fake binaries. Like what is true should go in the t- in the science textbook, and what is mythology or law or story mm. or Newton being bopped on Look, the head with an apple should doesn't you belong. There. You can't understand the complexities of of caring for f- caring for country with fire, which it is very complex. You know, you can't just backburn or something like that. It's it's constantly shifting and has to be responsive, and you need to understand the whole system. You can't understand that without the law. So you need the story that goes with that because that's where all the knowledge is. You know, you don't have to believe like, oh, yeah, there was a giant ancestor with a big foot dropped there. Like, it doesn't matter if that's literally true or not. Um, same way, what was the example you just you would just give? Ah, oh, the, the, the kaupapa Maori. Kopapa Māori is a, a is a, an indigenous methodology, and you know a, a lot of um, you know white scientists and researchers, or what do they call them, the um, Pakeha researchers, yeah. they they've inflected their methodology with Kopapa Māori uh, because there is there are really good ethical processes embedded in that, and so they can inflect their scientific methodology with Kopapa Māori um, because it it. It actually, you know, um, it shifts the focus and you see things that you wouldn't have seen before if you weren't doing that mixed methods approach. You know, these things all have value, but they only have value in embassy. They only have value when we're sitting around the fire and no one's at the front, you know. Um, and I guess that's what that's what the call is to write story is that's how write story is built. You know, we need to build our, build our new stories of, uh, you know, of what we all are and what we're supposed to be. And how we can uh, how we can deal with the change, and how we can deal with these assholes uh, together. We have to have a good story where we have a common ontology agreed, and it doesn't matter what the mystical parts of that, which you know uh, might be true for you, but they're not really real <laughs> universally. Um, there are you know universal goals and desires that people have. Um, yeah, part of what impedes that, it strikes me in people's quest for uh, right or wrong or black or white or uh, good or bad is the binary. Like, I mean, mm. when I was saying earlier about my I straddle a bunch of different communities and a bunch of different ways of thinking, you obviously do. That's your whole life's work really is to try to articulate a bridge between these two ways of, of being and ways of thinking. And you have an analogy in the book about your, your old Danish uh, friend. Is he Danish or Dutch? He's Danish. Danish. And you, and, it, and you say that over there they've got a sense of some uh, like tactics being either ag- agricultural or non-agricultural, meaning like, uh, you know, I don't know, the pseudoscience of the indigenous or semi 
agricultural. But that in Australia, we don't have a classification mm. of semi-agricultural. We have right. to deem things to either be on one side or the yeah. other side of a bright white line of truth or fiction. All right. That wasn't the Danish fella. That was the Frisian fella, that other kind of Viking Got it. from Netherlands. Got it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, Get my Vikings mixed up. My so apologies. That, uh, yeah, yeah. Those, those kind of um, uh, Saxon... Saxon Vikings, <laughs> there the Frisian indigenous, and it was more about um, that there is, there's no there, in their traditional farming um, that he inherited from his grandfather. There is not a clear line of demarcation between the natural systems um, and and the, and harvest. Uh, there's not a clear line of demarcation between that and the domesticated, you know, um, agriculture and pastoralism, etc. You know, it's all tied in together. You know, with uh, um, you know, collecting the 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 early spring bird eggs in in the the grassy meadow, and then like you know, burning that meadow, you know, to wake up the salamanders, you know, at the end of winter from their hibernation, um, you know, all of these things, and then mowing the meadow at another time, and and all of this stuff, it's all it's all bound together, you know, up with the the heathlands and the you know, everything else in their waterways and wetlands, you know, these are all commons. Um, and and the edge of their farm, uh, like the, you know, that there are there are wild things that they care for, <laughs> you know, within, you know, uh, and amongst all the domesticated uh, animals and crops. And, you know, these things kind of blend together traditionally. So, yeah, they're, they're, it was more about that. You know, there wasn't that line of de- demarcation between the domesticated and the wild. Mm, I like this fellow talks about his work with the with his with his horse, and you know ha- how informed he is by the sort of paleo stuff. You know, like a, a really old carving of a horse that has these weird sort of dots in in various places on the horse's body. You know, and it's from like ah ancient like cave caveman kind of thing, like from thousands of years before the horse was domesticated anywhere in the world, this carving, but it has these spots. And the horse is standing in a real weird way, like with its legs out, kind of prone. And anyway, so he tried pushing those pressure points on his horse. To hear the rest of this conversation, go to uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash listen, and you will get your own personal premium podcast feed with at least three extra episodes of the podcast every month and heaps of extra stuff, including the remainder right now of the fabulous conversation you've just been hearing. If it was worth listening to this much of, don't rob yourself of the rest. Pull out your phone right now and search for Uncomfortable Conversations with Substack. Substack.